Good morning. 25 years. 25 years ago, I was invited to bring some homeless folks to Truett Seminary meeting in First Baptist Church. Just a few students back then. And they wanted to know about the poverty in Waco, and so I brought my three students, my three teachers, over to teach the Truett Seminary students about homelessness. And uh, it was quite a deal. I, I remember we ended up the conversation. I have a man named Catfish. Everybody has to have a street name. His name was Catfish. And we got to the end. He was kind of going back and forth with the Truett students. And he finally said, I'm not sure you're even Christian. <laughs> well, I'm not here to be that prophetic. <laughs> what I do think he knew and all of us know is life and deeds have to go together. And the poor, when they do the research, have a very high view of God. It's a great, incredibly more people in their poverty have a high view of God than rich people do. At the same time, <clears throat> excuse me, at the same time, they have a very low view of the church, a low, very low view of the clergy, if you will. I uh, grew up in a little town north of Houston, First Baptist Church. I was a church kid. I love the church. I'm so good at ping pong because I learned to play ping pong at the church. For seven years, I did not miss one Sunday school class. I still have a pen where I wore to make sure everybody knew how holy I was. Till I came to Baylor, they showed me how to sleep in, and I did. <laughs> I, uh, I was one of those kids that did the right stuff. I didn't get drunk on Friday night. I didn't hang out with the guys that did the wrong stuff. And I asked questions. I remember in 1967, I was a junior in high school, time of very much civil strife, civil rights movement was going on. The rumor began to spread that the blacks were coming to our white church. Whoa. We never saw them, and we never know if it was a rumor or not. But the reality is we were told that the deacons were making sure they would not get in. Really? Now, I, I grew up in the prejudicial years. I, two little leagues, two water fountains, two everything. That was my hometown. Racial jokes were a part of life. But the church never challenged me about that. We never asked the question, should we be in the civil rights movement? And we stood at the back doing nothing. Came on to Baylor in 1968, tuition was $15 an hour, but we only won four football games in four years. You get what you pay for. Uh, I, uh, my sophomore year, I became a youth director of a local church, a local Baptist church here in town, and uh, it was really transformative. It's very easy to come to Truett, come to Baylor, and go out to the malls and shop or go to the restaurants and eat, but not really get to know Waco. But when you're a youth director, you get to know the community. About six months into my youth directing, I had a phone call one day from an African-American pastor named Dewey Pinckney. Pinckney was head of the NAACP here in town. I didn't even know where he lived. He said, I'm in no man's land. I didn't even know where that was. There was this little pocket of poverty between Waco and Belmede that nobody wanted, was not incorporated, was terribly poor, terribly poor. Pinckney was the pastor of St. Mary's Baptist Church. I didn't know you could have a St. Mary's Baptist Church. <laughs> there was nothing in my past that made that okay. 
He said, would you bring your youth group over to our part of town and help our kids do vacation Bible school? That's a big choice. Again, in the world I knew, that didn't happen. So I went over and met with Pinckney, and I remember at one point we walked around, and he was showing me different places there in the community, and he said, um, let me give you an example. He pushed a door open in a house that had a tree literally going through the front porch. A tree going through the front porch. And he said, probably nobody lives in here, but a man did scream. He never saw us because he was completely blind. We walked into that house with refuse a foot tall. Rats and roaches ran everywhere. And the smell of poverty was something I will never forget the rest of my life. At 19 years old, I was shaped by that experience right here in this community. Begin to look at education differently. When you begin to have those experiences in the community, it changes the way you look at your education. I was a questioner. I began to ask hard questions. Do I really believe this stuff? I'm a, I'm a seminary trainer. Do I really believe this stuff? I began to wonder if I really did. Went through some dark moments during those college years about my faith. I think we almost have to do that at some level to go through from adolescence to adult faith. It's got to be ours. After five years of youth directing, sticking around a few years afterwards, I was invited out to the old Waco State Home. It's not here now. It's now called the Waco Center for Youth. But back then, it was an orphanage for kids who'd gotten in trouble. Moved from an orphanage exclusively, now it was mostly dependent and neglected kids. Many of these had been taken away from their parents. Children ages 6 to 17 who had scars on their arms, mostly scarred, sexually exploited, whatever and I was invited to become the new recreation supervisor. I didn't know what I was getting into. They were making changes in the way they did things out there. It used to be an old institutional mindset, and they were trying to make it warm and friendly. I was in charge of the gym, couldn't find it. On the way across the campus trying to find the gym, I stopped to talk to a house parent who was talking to a small child named Moki. Moki was six years old, but he was in trouble. And when I interrupted to ask where the gym was, Moki cussed me out. Six-year-old kid. I thought, what is going on here? Went on, found the gym, opened the doors. In a few minutes, two guys a foot taller than me got into a fight on the basketball court. It was an ugly fight. They picked up chairs, were hitting each other across the head. The cursing, the anger, the disrespect that week was the worst I've ever experienced in my life. I was so mad at God. Our scripture this morning is about Jesus going down the road to the Samaritan village with two of the disciples. But just before that, they had gone to the mountain. The Mount of Transfiguration. There they were on top of the mountain where they got to see Elijah and Moses, the patriarchs of the faith. Man, it doesn't get better than that. This is the revival, the prayer meeting, the, the one like none other. And they fell on their face and they worshiped God and they said, let's just stay up here. You've been in those revivals, those prayer meetings, those church times when if it could just be like this all the time, I'd love church. Jesus said, no, we're going down to Jerusalem. Short way or long way? Jesus said, we're going the short way. That was not good news to these guys because that meant they had to go through a Samaritan village. Hated Samaritans, half-breeds, reminders of their past failure. They'd have nothing to do with them and now they're about to enter a Samaritan village. Jesus sends one of them up ahead so we can find some food or a place to stay. In a few minutes, they come running back down the road. 
and I'm sure red-faced and angry, they say to Jesus, in the spirit of Elijah, who they had just seen, Jesus, they don't want us in their village. Bring down fire on them. Remember Elijah? Brought the five prophets of Baal? Made a statement about God being the eternal sovereign God? And in the spirit of Elijah, they wanted them to be obliterated. Who are they to reject us? There's a little statement right there at the end in chapter 56, verse 56. It says, and Jesus turned and rebuked them. Whoa. Didn't see that coming. I was one of those guys. That night, as I left the state home, I went out to Cameron Park. I walked around to debrief my week that I just had at the state home. God had apparently forgotten I had a seven-year Sunday school attendance plan. <laughs> or I'd been a youth director for five years. was trying to bring in the kingdom with him. Here I am, broken and wounded at the end of that week. I whined. I pouted. And then I got quiet. And as the Spirit of God does what the Spirit of God does, He met me that night. And I prayed and I listened. And I began to realize the own duplicity of my life. I knew the Bible verses. I had theological training. I had all the goods that we get. But how do you love a kid who cusses you out? I went back on Monday morning. They still cursed. They still fought. They still disrespected. But something changed in me. I begin to realize what a hypocrite I am. If I don't learn to love the very ones who desperately need love, what's this about? How do you love someone who can't love themselves? Even the pagans can love the ones who love them back. How do we love those? But I had never been trained in that. That experience over the next three years reshaped how I looked at life. Went on to seminary from there, but my job in the afternoon was to work with inner city kids. Down in the projects there in Fort Worth, Ripley Arnold Housing Projects, we didn't talk about theology. We talked about crack cocaine, 12-year-old girls getting pregnant, the harshness of the city, the pain of the city. And I wonder where the church was. Where were we? We, the ones who are doing fine, don't need a doctor. It's those who are broken need the doctor. Where were we? I began to get angry and frustrated with the church. As a young man, a young prophet, it's easy to blame the church. I'm going to tell you, I love the church. I love the church of Jesus Christ. We are the agent of change in this world. We lose our way. Get caught up serving ourselves. 86% of the funds, based on some research, says that we spend the money on ourselves. to the city. One out of three African-American children in this city is poor. That's wrong. How can it be in a city so blessed as we are that there can still be double the amount of poverty that there is. At the end of seminary, I worked a little few years with Ralph Neighbor in Houston, and then we, Janet and I, had a baby, and three months later we took off. We went around the world. We hung out around people that we'd never met before, went to Europe. We asked the kids who were on the streets, what do they believe? And they said, well, our grandparents were Christian. Our parents go sometime, but we are postmodern. We are post-Christian. We don't buy into all that stuff. We went to Singapore, Malaysia, Korea, Korea. 
We got to know people around the world. The Korean church was overwhelming. Largest church in the world. At that point when we were there in 92, 250,000 members of one church. Five years later we returned there, 500,000 members. Today, a million members of one church. I needed to see the church outside the Western context. They were sending missionaries all over the world. Still are. But we were more like Western Europe. According to Dr. David Barrett, every week in Western culture, 53,000 people leave the church. We in this culture are losing our way in so many ways. Koreans are sending missionaries to the United States now. The very idea. We ended up in India. I love India. We still work there. I got to meet Mother Teresa, one of my joys of life. We went there to Calcutta to a place called Kaligat, called the Mother House, a place where there are 50 men and 50 women, sisters of charity, after 4.30 a.m. prayers get up and go down to the train station in their rickshaws. And they take these lifeless bodies, these beggars, begging for a few rupees. They take them back to the Mother House where most of them will die in a few days. They feed them if they can eat, put an IV in their arm if they can. But it doesn't take long until they pass on. But there was a place where volunteers from around the world came and held their hands and sang songs to them, loved them, cared for them. We worked with the kids on the streets, thousands of children abandoned. We went to the slums, worked with the lepers. And it's four and a half months later and we are worn out. A one-year-old child, one more on the way. And we said, what are we going to do with our lives? What do you do in this reality that today half the world makes less than $2 a day? Today, one quarter of the world makes less than $1.25. 21,000 children will die today in our world. Our hearts were broken. Our bodies were worn out. We were emotionally tired. Of all the places to come back to, we said, let's go back to Waco. Some of you can't wait to get out of here. We came to love Waco. We knew the poverty was here, so we said, we can't go back to middle-class America anymore because we've seen too much. And so we went over to the old part of town, what used to be the nice neighborhood. My neighborhood was the rich neighborhood back in the 20s and 30s. I live in a 4,000-square-foot house that we bought for $12,000. Location, location, <laughs> location. It goes both ways. We, by the time we moved in, the neighborhood had completely changed. Back in the early days, it had been the rich, nice neighborhood. Now the blacks had moved over in the civil rights time. The white flight happened to the suburbs. Now the houses were filled with tenants. The house we bought had two mentally ill guys on one side, a kid upstairs, and a lady that had 40 cats in a one-bedroom apartment on the other side. A bar across the street from our house called the Chat and Chew. We could watch live and in color what many of you had to wait for the 10 o'clock news to see. It was a rough neighborhood. We didn't have air conditioning for about eight or nine years. But we decided that this was where we had to be. God became a man and dwelt among us. Incarnation Christianity. I didn't even talk. I'd done the mission trips. I've done the short-term stuff and taken the pictures and put them on my refrigerator. But what was it like to live in the middle of the pain? We, by nature, are pain avoiders. All of us are. Everybody is, I guess, at some level. The word compassion literally comes from two Latin words. It means to get up out of my place of safety and security and to get in the middle of the pain. 
So we gave up the dreams of the middle class. We moved into a tough neighborhood. We didn't know what we were doing. We have a saying at Mission Waco, there's a real line between faith and stupid. And we know we're on the stupid side a lot of times. But there in the midst of living in that neighborhood, the mission trip didn't go away. Now they came to our house. The children came to play. We built a basketball court. I have a full court at my house. Those of you that are basketball players come over on some Sunday night. They'll slam it and they still talk about my mother. And I don't know what she had to do with it. Inner city tough guys. I love those guys. Love them. The children we call Kings Club kids. Then the teenagers began to come. Then we had to deal with people who were hungry and we didn't know what we were doing. We, we literally didn't. They don't train you for this stuff at seminary. Yesterday, you'll love this. Yesterday, I had to go do some, quote, marital counseling, a couple from my church. I had to meet them at the Uptown Motel, which is a pretty rough one. And uh, they're in this one little bitty room. Here she is, and she is so mentally ill, and she didn't take her medication that day. She had called me eight times before I got there. Her mind was just crazy yesterday. Her soon-to-be husband um, had a leg monitor on, and uh, they'd had a big fight that day. They decided not to get married, which I was really excited about because I knew it wouldn't last long. But they they don't train you to do counseling with broken people like we're around. All of a sudden, living in a neighborhood and hanging around people, the, the, the things that I thought were so important weren't so important. Now they needed jobs. Nobody taught me how to create a job program. How do you do that? You see, I grew up in the world where evangelism was all that mattered. The great reversal in the 1900s where the church began to happen and the conservative church and the liberal church split in a big way. We used to do those kind of things in early Christianity. Social ministries were a part of our life. But in the great reversal, all of a sudden, all we care about is evangelism. My church, all we talked about was getting saved. Every sermon, we had a... An invitation for it. I guess that's okay still. But most of them were Christians. I remember, I remember then we had the revival guy come in and he was, his job was to make sure that we had professions of faith. All he'd do is scare us. And so a lot of us went to revivalism and got saved again. We sure wanted to make sure we had it right because he'd say if we don't know the day and time, maybe we didn't, weren't saved. We walked the aisle again, got baptized again. Go to church camp, even more. Then there was the late great planet Earth movies and all that stuff. We just kept getting saved in our churches. That's all we did. We didn't do anything. We just got saved. There's got to be more to it than this. And now I'm in the middle of a neighborhood and we're having to create jobs. Then I'm on crack cocaine. What do you do with that? I don't even know how to understand that. So we had to create recovery programs. Then there's homeless people. There's issues all over, and there weren't any services in this community. Mission Waco grew up out of the needs of the... We believe the people with the problem must be a part of the solution to the problem. You don't go fix people. I don't go, I'm not a great white hope that goes down and helps those poor people. That's wrong. I've learned as much about the kingdom of God from broken people than I've ever learned in a seminary. I need them in my life. We began to relate to folks, and I fell in love with them. I love my neighborhood. I don't want to live in the nice neighborhood. I don't want to go to any church but Church on the Bridge. We're a lot more fun than most of your boring churches. You get in the middle of the issues and, and life is messy. Real messy. But somehow it was right. I, I, just, I sort of believe that when Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount, there were kids running off there behind the trees to pee. 
Those are issues that we face under bridges. All of a sudden we realize that a worshiping community would be great. We were doing all these different programs. One day Janet and I were overeating at uh, Taco Cabana and we noticed the homeless people sleeping under this bridge right across the street. There wasn't a shelter back then. So we said, let's go learn from them. So we invited them to be our teachers and said, we'll pay for your breakfast. You teach us about homelessness. So that Friday morning we met for two hours. They said, this is great. We learned a lot from each other. They said, let's do it next week. So we did. Of course, I bought breakfast. There were more next week. The third week we paid over $200 for breakfast and said, okay, this is getting tough. But I would learned a whole lot about them. And they said, come over to our bridge and do a Bible study. Janet sings and plays the guitar. I said, yeah, we can do that. So we went over the next week. Five guys showed up. We set the chairs around. Noise overhead. It's so loud. But something happened for me. I found a sense of who I am and what I'm called to be about. And they said, let's do it next week. One of the homeless guys went out on the corner that week. We could still panhandle legally back then. One guy stood up and said, come to Bible study. Yeah, that's good. I like that. A Baylor kid walked across the street. A couple of community folks came and all of a sudden this dumpy little Bible study became Church on the Bridge. If you haven't come, please do. Even if it's just a sociology experiment, walk across the street and see this incredible diversity. We've been there 23 years now, 52 weeks a year outside no matter what the weather. Blacks and whites and browns and rich people and poor people. Things that are so different and so challenging in so many ways. You'll meet Patrick. Patrick is our lead guitar guy, sort of. Patrick's about 45-year-old African-American man that got off the bus one day and teeth were completely black and he mumbled something. We didn't understand a word the man said. He said it five times. Somebody finally said, I think he's saying he wants to be on our worship team. <laughs> well, he can't sing and he can't play. But for us, it was a logical problem. I grew up in the church and there were no mentally ill folks in my church. What about yours? Are there those who don't fit in society that are involved in your churches? And the mentally ill especially are so marginalized. And so we said, um, okay, Patrick, go to the back and bang on the bongos. He banged on them a while, knocked them off the stage, and it really rolled out into the street. We had to go get them. The next week we said, okay, because he's real frenetic, can't be still. He was moving around, knocking over music stands. And so we said, okay, here's your box. Stay in your box. You ever have to do that in your church? Um, keep people in boxes. Well, he, he got out of his box and still knocked over music stands. The third week we figured out what to do. We bought him an electric guitar. We just never plugged him in. And so Patrick would go up and down the aisle and he would play his guitar. And then he stops and plays like he's sign language and he'll do this. He, well, he doesn't sign language. A lady a few weeks ago came up with tears in her eyes and said, thank y'all so much for having a deaf ministry. We don't have a deaf ministry. <laughs> but that's just Patrick. Um, and when you come now, he's the lead guitar. He has a guitar about this big with two strings on it. And um, he'll, he plays like he plays. He'll walk down on the front chairs and he'll take somebody's Bible in their hand and give it to the guy next to him. You know what to do with that. And one day I saw him. He tore out a page of somebody's Bible and handed it to him. <laughs> I love that. And then Claude comes up. Claude is, how do you describe him? Mentally retarded, challenged. He has thick glasses, he walks funny, he has Huntington's disease, 
Everybody made fun of Claude his whole life. But Claude is a savant. Claude can tell you who won the World Series 10 years ago. He can tell you the scores of some of those games. Claude loves sports. So we call him our Minister of Athletic Information. (laughs) Got one in your church? Uh, Claude gets to tell the scores of the games before, the day before. And then we give him about one minute with a congregation. Anybody has a question, did Syracuse win the basketball game? He'll tell you the score. And then Claude sings, Jesus loves me. Can I just tell you, I know who the visitors are by that time. Because there's hardly a dry eye. Because here's Claude, a broken man, ridiculed and laughed at by the world and sometimes by the church. Who's a brother. He's just as important as I am. And when he sings, Jesus loves me, my heart breaks. For all these years, we've been hanging out under the bridge. Lots of stories. I've learned more about the kingdom. Thy will happen, God says, on earth as it is in heaven. I still worry about us as a church. We're still too white or black or brown. We're still too either rich or too poor, not worshiping together. We're going to sit at a banquet table someday. And all of us are going to be there. Practice the kingdom until he comes. Work at it. Let's get rid of the racial prejudice in our cultures. The church needs to be the lead. We don't even talk about it very often in the church. There's a church in Chicago we work with some, and I love it. It's a group that uh, on Sunday morning, they'll have a regular kind of service, but in the evening they gather and have questions. And It's a very multicultural church. Each of the cultures will meet and they'll deal with one question, and then they all get together and talk about how they see it. And then they eat fudge ripple ice cream. They talk. Our call is to be light and salt, to change the community. It's going to take some courage. Because we've taught people, and I was one of those, on our best sermons, people still don't get up and do anything. We've got to change the way we do things to get people out of the pew and into this community. It's hard. It's hard, but we can do it. Let me close with this. Janet and I were in a slum there in India one time, and we work in Haiti and Mexico and India each year. We work with an unreached people group in northwest India, and um, we um, were in a city somewhere there in India. Walked into the slum. The greeting in India is this, Namaste. I salute the divine qualities I see in you. And I noticed um, as we walked in that this slum was different. People had bandages on their hands, and we said, what's the deal? I said, well, didn't I tell you, he said? He said, the translator said, they're lepers, leprosy. I was petrified. All I could know was the, the Old Testament lepers walking around in bands, and everybody's scared to death, and they had to holler, unclean. Now I'm in a whole village of them, hundreds and hundreds with their families. I walked around overwhelmed. I grew up as a kid not crying. Men were tough. Guys my age didn't cry. That's what sissy girls do. We didn't cry. I'd learned not to cry. But I'd prayed for years. God, let me have tears again. God, let me feel again what you must feel when you look down today and see a world that has enough food in it and yet 21,000 of your babies are going to die. God, let me, I can't handle much of it. Just let me feel a little bit. Let me cry again. 
Jesus stood over the hillside and wept. I've never cried many times for things that matter. That day in that leper slum, I, I cried. I wept. Because I realized I had a disease worse than leprosy. It's called spiritual leprosy. Leprosy takes away the feelings in your fingers and your toes and you hurt yourself because you can't feel. Lepers burn themselves on the open fire because they can't feel the flames scorching them as they cook their food. Or they step on a piece of glass and get a cut only to have that cut turn into an infection and then gangrene and then amputation. Every night in leper slums, rats literally eat their toes off because they can't feel, they don't know what to do until they wake up the next morning. Leprosy. Painlessness is the problem, not pain. Jesus sat at a well with an adulterous woman. He ate in the home of a tax collector. He touched lepers. This is my God. He wasn't the pretty white guy on the picture like my home church had. He's down and dirty. He's getting made fun of by religious people, the Pharisees. I was one of those. And that day, he broke my heart. Because I realized somehow I thought I was more important than I really was. I'm saved by grace just like everybody else. My call to you this morning is to come enter the pain of the city. Some of you are transfers. You're just coming through on the way somewhere else. We need you. But more importantly, you need them in your lives. Let me pray. Father, we ask today that you give us the courage to enter the pain of our city. For mamas who are getting kicked out today of their apartments with their three babies, help us to know that pain. For those who haven't eaten, for the mentally ill man who walks the streets of our city with no one to talk to, remind us, Lord. Father, today we would ask you to give us an overwhelming sense of your love for those in pain. We are your hands. We are your feet. Lord, we pray for the church in Waco. We pray for the church in America. Save us from ourselves, O oh Lord. Help us feel again what you feel. In Christ's name I pray.